Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for the reality of the salvation we have through Jesus Christ. I pray that our hearts would be stirred this morning as we heard testimonies of how the gospel changed lives. As we take comfort in knowing that through Jim and other Gideons that really dedicate so much of their time and their resources to be able to spread the word of God, that that word will not return void. It will accomplish exactly what you intend for it to do. And I'm asking now that you would use that word to stir our hearts, to help us grow in our love for you. And because of our love, to grow in our obedience to you. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You get fortune cookies. You know, what do you do with those things? I mean, they're, they're mass-produced. You know, there's nothing really super special about the message. But if you get a fortune cookie, how many of you break it open and read it? Oh, my goodness. I thought all of you would. My hand's raised, by the way. So, last night, uh, Timmy and I had a chance. To, uh, we were out with some friends, and we got fortune cookies. And I had to share mine. This is the best, the most profound message I've ever seen in one. And it had you written all over it. It was great. It's just I needed to share it with you today. This is it. I, I, can, I have it right here. I'll show it. I'm not making this up. Others appreciate your good sense of humor today. I'm like, finally, they're going to start laughing at my jokes. (laughs) Well, that remains to be seen. But anyway, I did want to share that with you. I thought that was pretty pretty amazing. Now, I know that a lot of you are kind of backwards. Sorry, just speaking like it is. But um, this morning, in spite of the way that some of you view things, in fact, the majority of you do, we are going to do what I like to call the right way this morning. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the good news first. I know that's a whole debate. We went through all of that, and you guys drastically outvoted me. But since I'm here and you're there, we're doing the good news first. So here's the good news. You ready? We are finally, after a few weeks away, we are finally able to get back to Malachi. Which, by the way, I'm going on record here, I am pretty sure that it is my favorite of the 12 minor prophets. It's an amazing book. So that's the good news. We're back to Malachi. The bad news is this. It's our final sermon in our series of majoring on the 12 minor prophets. So if that makes your vision a little blurry, that's okay. I'm I'm a little misty-eyed myself because I'm going to miss these guys. But I hope, I desperately hope, and my prayer going into this series and my prayer throughout the whole thing is that it will help give all of us a greater vision and understanding of God's completed word. And that those 12 books, they're minor only because of their shortness. They are not minor in their importance. I hope you have a new passion for reading and trying to understand those books. So, now, as we saw three weeks ago, 
Malachi contains six, and they're called disputations. It's really just kind of a series of indictments that God brings against the people. And and each one of the disputations, it contains three different parts. Just quick summary or review of that. Number one, God voiced an indictment against the people. He would bring the charge there. Number two, then the people, they they are pictured as responding to God with a question. As to how it's really true, what he stated. And then the third part of each one of the disputations is that God answered their question by restating his initial charge. And then he expanded on it to prove beyond all doubt that they were indeed guilty of exactly what he said that they were guilty of. So we covered the first three uh, last time we were in this book. So this morning we're going to look at disputations four through six. So. Charge number four, inaccurate views of God. Now, there's a story, this little boy, he was kneeling beside his bed to say his, his nighttime prayers, and his mom stood in the doorway, and, and the grandmother who was there visiting them, she was there with her daughter, and they were watching uh, the little boy uh, say his prayers. And as he knelt beside his bed, he prayed in his normal voice. He said, Dear God... Please bless Mommy and Daddy and all the family, and please give me a good night's sleep. But then he shouted, And please, don't forget that I really want a new bicycle for my birthday. Mom was shocked. She she said, Sweetie, there's there's no need to shout. God's not deaf. I know, but Grandma's awfully hard of hearing. So, now, I don't know if he actually had a right view of God or if he just really understood how his grandmother uh, functioned. I don't really know the answer to that. But here's the thing. The people of Israel, the people of Judah, excuse me, here, they had such a poor understanding of God. They did not understand who he was. They didn't really know God at all. I hope you're with me in Malachi. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Let me just read that verse. Chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or or by asking, where is the God of justice? You see, what's happening is things weren't going as well for the people as they had thought that they should because they were, quote-unquote, God's people. They didn't think God was really being fair to them. They're like, well, hey, why are the wicked people doing so well? Why do we always seem to be struggling. You, you say that you are a God of justice, and yet, well, where is the justice in all of that? Look at how hard our lives are. Think about that with me. How crazy, how ridiculous that they would make those charges against God. All that he had done through the many years of 
providing for them, leading them out of Egypt, guiding them through the wilderness, the provisions there, the conquering of the land, taking all the possession of that, and they would turn to sin and God would bring in judges to, to deliver them and they would go back to sin again and it would continue on and then God gave them kings to deliver them from their enemies. God was always doing this. People were always, their hearts were bent towards evil and sin and they would start to fall away and God would give them prophet after prophet to call them back to repentance. God kept warning them. God finally then allowed them because of their sin to be carried away into exile. And then after 70 years of exile, he brought them back to the land. What grace, what mercy that he was showing to them. As he brought them back to the land, he provided everything they needed then to ultimately to rebuild the temple and then years later to rebuild the walls of the city so that they had protection. God had done all of those things for them. And yet, now they're questioning, is God good to them? Is God fair? They didn't know God. They didn't understand God, who he was. And as I was thinking about this, it really stems back to where this book of Malachi began. It really stems back to the very first disputation that we saw. Uh, turn back just one page, if, however your Bible is. I want you to go back to the very first one where we started this book a few weeks ago. Chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? I don't think it changed. I think that this, we're here, we can see, we can understand that these people, what they're really, the, the core problem for them is that they always were questioning whether God loved them because God didn't always fit right into the box exactly the way that they thought he should. How crazy is that? The question then for them is no different than for us now. The question has never been, does God love you? If we understand who God is, we, we never have to question that love. I'm not saying circumstances can't be devastating, but we never have to question God's love. Yes, God is just, and he is pure, and he is holy, and he is righteous, and he must punish sin, otherwise he wouldn't be God. But yet, because of his love for us, he loved us so much, in fact, as you well know, he sent his son, his one and only son, his perfect son, to take our sins upon himself, to take our place on that cross, so that we could be saved from the punishment that we all deserve because of our sin. And we know the punishment that we all deserve is eternal separation from God and everlasting suffering in hell. That's what we deserve. So no, the question has never been, does God love you? The question is, do you know and love God? And that's where I think a lot of us as Christians, we distort the reality of who God is and how we show our love for him. It's so easy for us to delude ourselves into thinking that because God loves us and because he has forgiven our sins, well, then it's okay for us to live any way that we want. And while we know that God isn't, well, he's not exactly happy with some of our lifestyle choices, we tell ourselves it's really not that big of a deal. God loves me, and I'm forgiven. So it's okay if I sin. 
That is wrong every way possible. Rosaria, Rosaria Butterfield has written a new book, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age, and she wrote this, and I thought that was so profound. She said, our obedience reflects the integrity and authenticity of our faith. I could not agree more with her. And think about it with me. That's basically what Jesus said in John 14. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. He goes on, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Of course, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. We will never have that until we are with Christ in heaven. But I am talking about this for us. An increasing hatred and intolerance of the sin in our own lives. We must, and I repeat, we must stop saying, it's not that big of a deal if I sin because I'm saved. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, He said this, when we think too lightly of sin, we think too lightly of our Savior. And then he goes on to say, sin has been pardoned at such a price that we cannot henceforth trifle with it. Compare sin to our Savior. Every single sin that we try to say is not a big deal That is one of the sins that caused Jesus to have to die on the cross for us. So no, greed, gossip, sexual immorality, pornography, substance abuse, dishonesty, anger, hypocrisy, pride, and every other sin in our lives. Just know this, it is never okay and it is never not a big deal. To know God is to love God, and to love God is to obey him. I don't think we can say we really truly love God when we are intentionally holding on to sin in our lives. I'm not suggesting that because we sin that we are not saved. But I am suggesting that I think that too often we think far too little of our Savior. And we think that grace gives us a free pass to do as we want. That is not God's will. Charge number five. Inadequate giving to God. Look at chapter three, verses six through eight. Follow along as I read those. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you... O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? God's answer, in your tithes and contributions. And when I read that, some of you are like, oh no, 
Say it ain't so, Joe. He's preaching about tithing. That's why I don't like coming to church because they're always begging for my money. Some people, some people I would say get really hung up over passages like this. And I'm so sad to say that I've heard that some churches maybe do beg for money and put expectations on people. I am so incredibly fortunate to be part of this church where many of you give freely and you give generously to God's work here and around the world. And so I never have to go out of my way to preach about tithing, and I am so thankful for that. But I won't run from it either when the text demands it. So the word tithe, we use it all the time. The word tithe literally means a tenth. And so, yes, tithing, if we want to tithe, it means giving a tenth of our income back to God. In fact, not to poke the bear unnecessarily here, but in Scripture, that's pretty much the starting point. It's horrifying when I read statistics that the Average Christian, evangelical Christian in America gives approximately 29 to 3% of their income. That's not scriptural. A tithe is a tenth. I'm not going to get hung up on all the percentages of that, but again, not to poke the bear unnecessarily, but you have to understand, look at verse 8 again, what it says there. They were robbing God in their tithes, and contributions. Some of your translations say offerings. In other words, they weren't tithing and they were robbing God of that. They weren't giving extra and they were robbing God in that capacity. Now, I used to think that people who didn't tithe were just being stingy or greedy with their money. And for some, let's be honest, for some people that's probably why they don't tithe. But I've changed over the years. I've changed a lot in regards to that because I don't really think that's the primary reason people don't tithe. I think the primary reason some people don't tithe is because of a lack of faith. It's not that they're trying to be stingy or greedy. It's just that they don't trust God's going to provide for them. Because after all, let's be honest, it's hard sometimes just to make ends meet on 100% of our income. So how in the world are we supposed to do it on 90% or, or even less than that if we give more to God? My friends, that's where faith comes in. That's the beauty of what God does. Look what God says. This is just such an incredible passage. Look at verses 9 and 10. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Wait, what? God is giving us permission to actually test him? To see if he will meet our needs? To see if he will provide for us if we give some of our money back to him? 
it's okay to test God? Yes, that's exactly what God is saying here. Test him. It's amazing. If you have enough faith to obey God and trust him to meet your needs on 90% of your income, he will do it. It doesn't mean that we just foolishly spend all of our money and get ourselves in such financial straits that we cannot spare even a dollar. That's not what it's talking about. It's about taking our income, giving God the first part of that, trusting, living on faith that he will meet our needs on the 90%. So we have to be wise with our money, but we also need to be generous in giving our money to God. And I think when we do that, that doesn't necessarily mean that the more, it's it's not like a a get-rich formula here, boy, I'm going to tithe, I'm going to give, because the more I give to God, the more that I'm going to get, and I'm going to ultimately end up being rich, because I'm giving, um, you know, I don't know how God works. He may meet your needs and provide for you in incredible ways financially. He says test them. But I do think that the blessing here goes far beyond just financial. It will have a profound spiritual blessing upon you as well. And I tell you, it will increase your faith as you see God doing exactly what he promised that he would do, which is supply all of your needs when you trust him with the first part of your income. He said it. It's not me saying this. He says it. Test him. See what he will do. I promise you, I promise you, he will be true to his word. If you have an accurate view of God, which again, the Jewish people did not, right? We saw that number four. But if you have an accurate view of God, you know that he will be true to his word. And I want you to think about this with me. If everything we have is because God has provided it for us, and it is, And if everything we have really belongs to God, and it does, is it really too much of God to ask that we would give back a tenth of it to him in worship and adoration of him? I don't really think so. I love what Dr. Michael Barrett wrote. He said this, the more believers find satisfaction in the person of God rather than in possessions, the more freely they give themselves and all they have to the Lord. Dead religion selfishly hoards. Living religion selflessly gives. God said, test them. Charge number six. Improper complaints about serving God. I wanted to call this ridiculous complaints about serving God, but I was kind of on a roll. I don't know if you noticed that, but I'm starting each one of the charges with the letter I, and I didn't want to blow it now on the last one. So we're not going to go ridiculous. But look at verse 13, chapter 3, verse 13, following. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evil doers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. It's, right, it's like, God, it's just not fair. 
I've served you and I've done so much for you. And what's the use of that? The wicked people, they seem to get ahead. They get all the good things in life. And all I have to do, all I have to show for all of my hard work is nothing. That's kind of, you can almost read their kind of baby spoiled brats in this, right? Now, I am sure that we have all done things for God with improper motives. I know I certainly have. Maybe sometimes we think, well, if I do something for God, oh, then my life's going to be good. You know, kind of the prosperity gospel. Yep, if I do it for God, I know everything's going to turn out good. Yeah, that's not really biblical. But, but sometimes we, we think that maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe we do service for God because we're hoping for some praise, some recognition from other people. Here's the thing. God will reward you for your faithful and proper service of him. He will. But know this. It may not be today. It may not even be this week. Or this month. Or it may not even be this year. Or it may not even be in this lifetime. But God will reward you for your service to him done with proper motives and out of love for him. How do I know that? Because God told us he would do that. I think that's part of what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 6 when he said to lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Yes, he will reward you. I promise he will reward you. Maybe not as immediately as you are hoping, but he will reward you. Ultimately, though this, this is just, I think, mind-blowing. Ultimately, our reward is going to be God himself. Look at verse 16, 16 through 18. Because there were some faithful people, and this is what they did. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Just pause with me a minute. They put it on record. We are trusting God. We are trying to live our lives for him. We are fearing God and honoring him. Verse 17, this is what God responds. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares a son who serves his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Him. I think that's incredible. It's not service to gain salvation. Salvation only comes through faith, but because of our faith, because we become the children of God through the salvation that Jesus offers, we actually become God's treasured possessions. That's incredible. And as such, we then serve God out of love and appreciation for that. I don't know about you, but that blows my mind to think about that. How can God call me in all of my sinfulness, with all of my mistakes, with all of my failures, how can he call me one of his treasured possessions? It seems impossible. I know myself too well. Certainly it must be impossible. But yet, 
The answer is really quite simple. Because with God, the impossible becomes possible. And it's because of Jesus and only because of Jesus. Nothing that I've ever done or could do to earn a position where God says, yep, yep, he's one of my treasured possessions. (laughs) Yeah, that's setting the bar way too low. But think about it. Because of Jesus, every one of us who have accepted him as Lord and Savior, the moment we do that, we are given this special position of righteousness, a standing before God where he no longer sees us as sinful. He sees us as righteous and holy, not because we are, but but because Jesus gives us that position. God no longer sees our sin, but he sees the blood of Jesus that has washed us clean. And so God gives us this position. It should just excite you and thrill you that the rest of this week, you should go around just praising God. And it's not arrogant to say, I'm one of God's treasured possessions. It's because of Jesus. It's not because of us. It's all because of him. And so if you have indeed accepted him as your Lord and Savior... Stop listening to the lies that Satan whispers to you or that you tell yourself or that other people are more than generous to tell you that you are a big mistake, you're a loser, and you're never going to measure up. Stop listening to that. Listen to the word of God. In Jesus Christ, you are God's treasured possession. Let it go right there and don't listen to the lies. Treasured possession. That is just incredible. Well, the book of Malachi, it brings the Old Testament to close. Like, we're to the place now where, like, if you say, well, I don't really know the minor prophets, where's Malachi? You can just find Matthew and go back a page or two, right? We are there to the end of the Old Testament. It was more than 400 years after Malachi wrote his book that the New Testament then began. And during those years, there were no new revelations from God. In fact, Bible scholars call that period from Malachi until the New Testament, they call it the 400 silent years. But I tell you this, God was working. He was working as the people waited. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Just look back there real quickly. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Jesus quotes this very passage in Matthew chapter 11, and he said that it was none other than John the Baptist. God was working, I tell you, and preparing as the people were waiting. Now look at the end of the book, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, that was quoted by an angel of the Lord in Luke chapter 1 when he came and talked to Zechariah and Elizabeth and promised that they would have a son, and that son was going to be named John. We know him as John the Baptist, and it is so cool how God kept his promises and he made the way for the Messiah. Malachi, more than 400 years before Christ came, he's prophesying about this. He's prophesying about one who would come and prepare the way for the Messiah, the Son of God. These minor prophets, when you read them, you should just 
Just embrace the reality that God is true to his word. We don't have to understand all of it to know the importance and the reality of it. Let me share with you another quote from Michael Barrett as he concludes the book of Malachi. I think he does it so well. He says, Malachi was the last of the post-exilic prophets, and his latest, excuse me, his last word was a threatened curse. <laughs> Not a happy way to end. Look at it again, just the end of verse 6. Uh, Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So he writes here, not a happy way to end. But he goes on and says, but thankfully, his last word, Malachi's last word, was not the last word. I love this. It was the next to last word. The last word was coming. Christ, God's supreme and final word, was on the way. And that is the perfect segue into our new series that will begin next week, which is the Gospel of Mark. Because then, when Malachi prophesied as well as now, it really is all about Jesus. Malachi was not the last word, the next to last word. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the salvation that you offer us. I pray that you would help us. Lord, you understand our struggles with sin. But I thank you that we have the power within us to overcome sin and temptation. We will fail, and I praise you for your forgiveness each and every time, but I am thankful that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are not in bondage to sin. We don't need to be in bondage. Because we love you, we have everything within us through the power of your spirit, the power of your word to overcome sin. Help us love you enough to live our lives for your glory. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much.